0: Welcome to the Mad in America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice.
1: Welcome to the Mad in America podcast. My name is Leah Harris. I'm a psychiatric survivor activist and a correspondent with Mad in America. It is my honor and pleasure to welcome Celia Brown to the podcast. Psychiatric survivor and human rights activist, Celia's president of Mind Freedom International has been a longtime activist in this movement. Welcome to the podcast, Celia.
0: Thank you, Leia. I'm so happy to be here. Well,
1: it's great to have you. If you could please tell the listeners, how did you get involved in this work and and in the movement?
0: Well, I stumbled onto it by chance. I was living in a supported housing mental health program, and the counselors thought of me as high-functioning, and I, I hate that word, but... They thought that I could go to a conference in Troy, New York, and it was called uh, the Self-Help Vision Conference. So I went to the conference and I met Judy Chamberlain. I met Howie the Harp, um, Joe Rogers at night, a few people that were already in the movement and they were have they were talking about alternatives to the mental health system and developing drop in centers and 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 just sort of a self-help consciousness that everybody has a right to choice and i was in a program where that wasn't happening i had no choices really only the choices of of what the program wanted me to do and i was just um, blown away and i remember saying to judy Chamberlain, who's allowing you to do this conference? And they said, "No one. We're, we're empowered. We, we're, we're you know we're activists and we can do this." And that whole conference transformed my whole life because I always knew that there was something different. It had to be something where people were talking about choices and talking about their rights. And here I found it. I have to say that that experience really changed my life. I came back to my housing program and I started to organize. I organized some of the residents. We had meetings. Of course, later on, the staff stopped that from happening. And then I met outside of the, of the program and developed the an inter-expressive support group. Cause at that time, the language was self-help. Mutual support advocacy those were the that was the language back and that was mm-hmm. nineteen eighty eight that's when I went to that conference and since then, I got involved with becoming a member of Mind freedom at the time it was called support Coalition International, and I was getting all these different newsletters at Dendron and I was just everything that had to do with rights I was getting on the internet there was a listserv that's when we were doing so many listservs we didn't have social media yet and that really helped me through my own recovery because I wasn't really feeling like I was recovering I just I just I didn't understand how I was going to move forward in my life according to the mental health system or to my housing program. But then I met these wonderful people who had a vision already, you know, were doing consciousness raising. I've been in the movement since, you know, the civil rights movement, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And I was just blown away. I, I was so honored to meet them. I said, oh, my God, I, I can't believe I'm meeting Judy Chamberlain. I'm meeting Howie the Harp. And and I sort of learned from them. They were like my role models. <laughs> and I read everything I could read that they were doing. And one of the Bibles that is sort of out of print now, but if you were lucky to have a copy in your home like I do, <laughs> it's great. Uh, reaching a cross. I don't know if you've heard about that, Leia.
1: I've heard of it. Unfortunately, I don't have it in my library. So maybe you could tell the listeners a little bit about it.
0: Sure. So Howie the Harp, Sally Zimmerman, who's also an activist, and Sue Budd, they um, wrote this uh, like uh, self-help manual. And it was all about... Different chapters were, you know, how do you run a self-help group? How do you develop a drop-in center, which was the language then? How do you fundraise? You know, um, it it was just, like, incredible. So they gave you tools back then. If you wanted to do your own self-help group, you wanted to do a self-help program independent of the mental health system so it's quite incredible and now we have different uh, as you know we have ips intentional peer support you know we have so many different um tools and manuals on how to do stuff um but then we didn't i didn't see that we had a lot so having that reaching a course was excellent to have thank
1: you Delia. and it Yeah, you know, having these kinds of organizing manuals and toolkits, it's it's so vital and so important. And you know, especially in the days uh, before social media, you know, was it was harder to get your hands on those kinds of things. So yeah, we really honor them for that early work and what you know they were able to do in that regard. I've heard you say this before that um, you when you met you know Judy and many of those other activists, you were like, who allowed you to do this? And I think (laughs) it it just it reminds me because we hear this phrase so much learned helplessness, yeah, but I always challenge that, and I say that helplessness is taught, right yeah it doesn't come from the air, and so right. it is that it you know that process of consciousness raising when we sort of the, the veils kind of fall away and we realize like, oh, there's a whole other way to look at this and understand what's happened to us in our experience and and it so often is when we when we connect with people who've kind of traveled that path even just a little bit before us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we were involved at that time in teleconferences to talk about all of these different, you know, activist work that people, Judy and others were doing. And it sort of got people more involved. And, you know, I respected the fact that they were doing things that are outside of the system. They were creating a new way of doing self-help at the time that had nothing really to do with the system. It had to do with their experiences and how we can change the world, how we can create something for ourselves. I, I just thought that that was really powerful at the time.
1: And so you went on to sort of do your own organizing and you know, create these self-help groups. When did you start to get involved you know, really actively in human rights work?
0: You know, I went to a meeting called uh, at the Highlanders, the Highlander meeting, and what happened, this is like in the early 2000s, we were starting to see a shift in mental health legislation that outpatient commitment was coming over nationally. And there's, there's some people in the movement, including David Oakes, Janet Foner, Gail Bloomberg, and and many, who said, you know, let's get together and figure a strategy on how we're going to fight this. So we were there for like two days, two or three days in uh, Tennessee at the Highlander Center. And it's very significant because the Highlander Center is where Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks went to strategize. And there was pictures all over. And they had these rocking chairs there Mm -hmm. um, that people sat in. And some people said they were uncomfortable. But it was just telling to have these rocking chairs where people are sitting down there. You know, when you're in a rocking chair, you're sort of going back and forth. It's sort of like a meditative state in some ways to be thinking about all these different issues, you know. Uh, and from there, I started to really, you know, organize and say, "Hey, you know." And I had the and Judy Chamberlain was there as well. They always were role models to me, even to this day. And I was always listening to them and trying to figure out how do we move forward in our own rights, our own human rights, our own recovery, our own healing. And they gave the blueprint to me on how to do that. And so I just learned so much with them and I took what I learned from them into ne- the next era into doing more organizing, community organizing with people.
1: It really just reminds me of my own When I got connected with Mind Freedom, it was around 2000, 2001, and it was through the Mind Freedom Oral History Project, which you you participated in, (laughs) uh, along with so many of the other folks, many, unfortunately, of whom are like Judy and like Howie are no longer with us. Yeah, right. Um, Hearing those stories and those, uh, you know, experiences of activism and resistance was really what kind of like propelled me into doing that work. Yeah. So, so, how did you then get involved with the the human rights organizing at the UN around the Convention on the Rights of Persons with
0: Disabilities? So, what happened was uh, David Oaks, who who was the is the former director of Mind Freedom, he was trying to get a uh, consultative status um for mind freedom, which means that for the United Nations you could consult and give advice some of the UN bodies at that time. And so he asked me, and believe it or not, he asked Kate Millett, who's a famous feminist writer, um, activist, who mm-hmm. was also a member of Mind Freedom, And I had never met her, I didn't know anything about her, and I said, oh my God, so that here's another icon, you know? So we went together to the UN to sort of argue uh, that we really needed a consultative status for an organization of people, of psychiatric survivors. Kate was very instrumental, and I really helped as well. And at that same time, the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities was coming up for review. And that, for for your listeners, it really means a treaty, and it has several articles uh, that's legally binding. So I uh, was there as a Mind Freedom representative, and that was just such an honor for me to be at the United Nations. And I also brought other people to come as well, so it wasn't just me, it was other members who wanted to have the experience of the UN. And then it was the World Network of User Survivors of Psychiatry, and they were also leading the charge, uh, mainly uh, Tina Minkowitz, And so we all worked together as a coalition And we also were working with people with physical disabilities, like the World Blind Union, the World Deaf, and we understood that their disabilities were going to be more visible, more understood than ours. So we worked so hard to have them understand what it's like to be a psychiatric survivor, what it's like to go through the mental health system and not have a choice most of the time. And that your rights may be taken away from you, and we we and I and we also said that could happen to you. You could have a mental health issue, even if you're blind or deaf, or you know, um, or in a wheelchair. All of this could could happen. So they started to really understand, and we said we're going to go in as one. We're not going to go in that. Here's physical disabilities over here on one end, and here's people with, um, at the time, uh, and it's still, I think, the the language is psychosocial disabilities. That's the term at the UN. We weren't going to let the powers that be separate us. Oh, wait, that's mental illness, quote. And that has nothing to do with physical disabilities, and that right, was the going right. trend. We said, no, we're all going to go in together as a as a coalition, and we did <laughs> and it was excellent. There were several meetings uh at the u n and they had what they called side events. They're like workshops that anyone at that's at the u n body can come to that event and was usually in the afternoon after morning sessions. And I would talk about the ADA, American Disabilities Act, and having reasonable accommodations, and and things that, you know, wasn't readily understood from everyone that you know who was witnessing people with psychiatrics, who were psychiatric survivors, and it was just incredible, incredible experience. And so, what I want the listeners to know that the Convention on the Rights with Disabilities was written by us it wasn't written with people who didn't have a a disability so every article we looked at and changed or commented on I'm really proud of this and I just think this is one of the the uh, groundbreaking legislations of our time to have this convention and it's really for people all over the world but it can be used in the U.S. even though it's not ratified here in the U.S.
1: One of the uh, articles in the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities is Article 12, which is about equal recognition before the law and is really about legal capacity, which is, as you know, a huge issue for those of us who are labeled with mental illnesses. You know, there's such a push, as you mentioned, you know, going back 20 years now right uh, to reduce our rights and to involuntarily commit us whether outpatient or inpatient um so mm-hmm. i wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that article specifically because as i recall it was sort of one of the more controversial ones and, and one of the more challenging ones to get consensus on
0: yes it was very challenging and the reason is because as you know for years people with uh, psychiatric uh, disabilities were, are, and still today are thought of that they cannot make a decision because of, pers- of a perceived disability or quote mental illness. So you have no rights to even make your own decisions. This says that even if you're in um, a condition, emotional condition, you still have the right to make a decision and that we wanted to make this a part of equal recognition upon the law, that if you needed support, you would do supported um, decision-making. Like someone, whoever you trust, can help you with a decision. Moving into housing, like voting, or whatever it is, that it shouldn't be what they call substitute um, decision-making or guardianship. That just based on you having a mental illness, You no longer have the right to make any decisions in your life. And that was a strong part for people who were there who uh, are psychiatric survivors. We really wanted to make sure that that didn't happen to us or anybody else uh, with disabilities.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. And I think, again, even though the U.S. has not ratified this, which is very unfortunate, Um, that we can use this as an organizing tool in in our advocacy and activism to resist efforts to take away our rights, to reduce our legal rights.
0: Yes. One other one I just want to mention that we worked on really hard is Article 17, and that is the right right for mental and uh, physical integrity. And what that means is that we have a right not to uh, get, for instance, shock treatment. That that is our right to say that is going to compromise mental and physical integrity. I just think it's so profound in that language. It's so much different language at the UN that we don't really use outside of it. But here, I just think it's it's very profound. And I just want to thank... Everyone who was involved with it, uh, Tina, Tina Minkowitz led the charge, Mind Freedom, all the other disability organizations. I just feel so fortunate to be, to have been a part of that.
1: Absolutely. And I would echo those thanks 100% to you and, and everybody else, uh, you know, who was involved, Tina and everyone who was a part of making that happen. And again, you know, I think that this is so incredibly vital in these times, it always has been, but especially in these times uh, where there's so much more interest in things like forced antipsychotic injections mm. and even, you know, I wrote recently about pills with microchips, you know, really violate the integrity of the person. And and I appreciate that this gives us another set of tools and language with which to organize.
0: Thank you, Maya.
1: You bet. You know, obviously we saw a huge paradigm shift in our country around 2014 uh, yeah. when Michael, Michael Brown uh, murdered uh, in Ferguson and it, it really launched the entire Black Lives Matter movement. Right. And I remember, yeah, at the time, um, a lot of us were talking about how can we uh, be in solidarity with that movement? How can we uh, figure out how to integrate those struggles into the work? that is done with psychiatric survivors and people with disabilities. And it was right around that time that this whole idea of surviving race as an organizing principle and as as a movement came to be. And so I'd love for you to sort of talk about
0: that from your perspective. Right. And I just want to credit you, Leia. I don't know if you remember, but you came up with the name Surviving Race because we all were on a conference call. In 2014, I think you won the call uh, with other activists, and we were just talking about it. So I want to thank you. you. May not remember that. But, um, well,
1: it was a collective effort, and yeah. So yeah. Appreciate that.
0: I was so horrified by what happened to Michael Brown. You know, just sitting in my living room watching it on television, and I just felt like, what can we do? And then I started to think of my son and my nephews. What if they, they go through this and they don't survive? I was really afraid, especially for my son. He's a young black man and everyone else. And then I started to think about what can we do as a movement? Because we've done so many incredible things to be a part of this time in, in our history. So yes, Black Lives Matter came, but what about our movement partnering with them and any other coalition that wants to fight for this? And I was so happy that you and other activists uh, collectively said, we have to do something about this. This isn't right. Let's get involved. So we created Surviving Race really as a Facebook page, but also we do have um, you know monthly calls to get outside of social media so we can all talk to each other and we also were thinking you know how can people of color because it's always been and i 've heard this from everyone. The movement is basically white. And how do we work together? A lot of us have gone through similar things, you know, forced uh, shock, forced Medicaid, all of this collectively we all go through. So what's keeping us separate is the race issue. And all of us have gone through different experiences. And that's okay, but how can we get together? So we had several dialogues, Uh, with people who are white who are in the movement and people of color. And I think it was a start to do it, but I I don't think it really brought us together. It helped us get dialogue, but we didn't have uh, accountability that you talk about and and help introduce that to me, Leah. You know, restorative justice, things that have been maybe in the criminal justice system, but not in in the, the mental health survival world at all. And I'm just really excited about really looking at that to heal some of the things that have happened in our movement and also to make people accountable in our movement as well. So I think this work is just beginning, and I'm really looking forward to all of us working on that and reading more about it. Our movement needs to be more mainstream than it is. And uh, and I know we've been doing this for a long time. We did manage to get into the media at some points in, in our movement history, but for some reason, it's not totally happening. Except, I'm really thankful for Man in America for really bringing out a lot of the different issues that people are facing. So, I'm real. I'm grateful for Man in America. I think that's a really important. Tool and um, different articles and and different perspectives on the mental health system, on uh, drugs and everything else. I just I just think that that it, it's great that that's there.
1: I still appreciate that, and that you know this this idea that it's it's a matter of social justice. And I think there's so many opportunities to build bridges because I'm sure most of our listeners are aware. But, uh, the vast, vast majority of people who are killed, uh, by the police are people of color who are experiencing some kind of a crisis. Uh, and Sean King, other folks have sort of written about this, that, that, you know, calling 911. On a person in mental health crisis uh, can be a death sentence if you're a person of color. So I think there are so many opportunities to build bridges with the movement against mass incarceration, with the movement for Black Lives, uh, and mm-hmm. let's face it, you know the vast majority of people who are the most depressed in the mental health system and in you know, the criminal justice system are overwhelmingly people of color. So many points of organizing. Um, Celia, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your vision for the conference that we've been talking about, like Yeah. Kind of what, are we, what are we moving towards? And maybe you could share your vision with the listeners.
0: Sure. Um, I mean, we want to have a surviving race conference and bring people together I think it would be more of like a retreat, like a strategizing conference. I think our vision is to figure out—I mean, deal with the issue of you know police uh, brutality, you know, uh, it, you know mass incarceration, people in our mental health system, and I want it to be educational for people of color. I think sometimes because. Of the racism and psychiatric oppression, we're not really able to fight as we would like to fight. It's trauma to always be looking over your shoulder every minute if you're a person of color okay. in this country. It, 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 no one deals with it, but it's, it's trauma. How do we heal from that for one thing? And then how do we create a social justice agenda? And I think all of us can work together to do that. and and produce something that can go into all of local communities. So it wouldn't be, even though it's a national conference and we've gone to many of them, but that we come out of this conference and how do we do this? How do we um, use strategies and ways uh, and, and different approaches in our local communities? I really think the answer is local communities. The conference is going to be in Charlottesville, which is historical of what happened there in um, August 13th in 2017 with, you know, the white supremacists and the Nazis, and it was a very horrible time in our history. And I think as we move forward, whether you have a, you know, your label with a, a psychiatric disability, we're all subject to traumas we never thought we would even deal with in our time and we have to have approaches on healing and social justice and i think that that is the future for our young people i think we are people that can lead youth and also listen to youth or what is what do they need now and then tools that we could share with them and tools they could share with us how do we move together? rather than I know more because I've experienced more as an adult. But you also know more. My son knows more. And Leia, like, I'm sure you listen to your son. Like, how do we listen to that and incorporate that into something that we can move forward in this world? hundred percent. It,
1: you know, it has to be an intergenerational agenda for folks who are white in this movement and want for this to be a truly inclusive movement, not to sort of integrate people into a movement that's mostly white, where they may not feel comfortable. What would be your counsel to folks who are white and want to do better?
0: I would say that, first of all, um, there's simple things is just really listening, learning about our history, because our history is all of our history. So, you know, when I was growing up, I learned a lot about everyone's history, Holocaust, uh, civil rights history, uh, slavery, everything. I think from that stance, I think we need to be reading or looking at some of these issues because it's all a part of our history. So that's one thing. Second, when there are opportunities for a person of color to be on a panel or to be keynote, really be thinking of people who could be a part of that panel or conference or workshop. I think sometimes we don't even think about that. So we need to be multicultural when, we, when we're um, asking people to speak or deliver a message. Not just saying, oh wait, we need people of color and just, I mean, we've already done that and it's not been helpful. So I I think that that's the second thing that we may need to do. And just really continue the dialogue and just deal with what's now. Like, what are you feeling now? What can a white person learn from us? And what, what can we learn from them too? How can we work together? Because all of our existence, our human existence, relies on uh, all of us.
1: From what I'm hearing you say, it really sounds like you're sort of, you're speaking to the spirit of solidarity, um, and also centering those most impacted, because yeah. um, the overwhelmingly people of color who are most impacted by forced treatment, forced yes. drugging, mass incarceration, and police violence. As a a Jewish person who benefits from (laughs) privilege every single day, this is also my call and invitation to folks in the movement is really think about how can you not just invite someone to be on a panel, but really center the leadership and the perspective, even if it's not what you like to hear, to listen, as you you
0: said. It's uncomfortable for all of us. But at the end of the tunnel, we're going to be coming out with some really good healing and solidarity together. And I think us as a movement, we're in the position to do this. I really believe that we could do it.
1: Absolutely. And I think that is what we bring. And I think that's also what Black Lives Matter has really done incredible work around. Is yes. How do we resist these oppressive forces? And I'm of the mind that, that the mental health authorities and the law enforcement authorities are getting closer and closer every day. Yeah, We have common cause. How do we resist these oppressive forces, but mm-hmm. how do we resist the carceral state and how do we create structures that are not based on punishment, but really on, uh, as you said, accountability and yeah. uh, transformative justice and all these principles that really have been put to get put forth by us but and also by, uh, you know, really with the leadership of folks like Incite, Women of Color Against Violence, Black Lives Matter. How do we do this differently? Um, and so I think that's one of the things that gives me a lot of hope.
0: Yeah, it gives me hope, too. One other thing I want to say, you said, you know, where are we moving? You know, where do you see the movement doing really well? And, and I ha- I thought about it this morning, and I think it's the, the it's hearing voices movement. I think we're, we're really getting momentum in this movement. It's excellent. And I see that not only people who do have visions and voices, but there are people that don't hear that, that are, are, are coming inside of the movement and trying to understand what do people go through when they're in an altered state? You know, what are some of the uh, different healing approaches? Um, that we can all learn from. I think it's fascinating. I really do. I think that that's an important piece um, to be involved with and to learn from.
1: Right, but it's about um, learning and under, you know, understanding those experiences, and also seeing, you know, the potential visionary aspect of, of hearing voices. Right, and right. what, how might we all benefit? Uh, from those gifts, when we're not uh, pathologizing or shutting them down. So I, I absolutely agree with you that there is something really, really powerful and potent there that continues to be building uh, as a movement.
0: Yes, yes. And I, I just want to give all of the the work that you've done on trauma has been excellent. That's something that people should be more aware of, more more reading about. Uh, of course, intentional peer support. And I remember when it when Sherry Me was first conceptualizing what intentional peer support would be, and it's gone so far. Um, and I'm going to mention the rap plan. I know some people have issues with it, but the wellness recovery action plan. I remember no one in the system would use it, and now. You have to have that in when they come and they do an audit in the mental health system. Does that person have a RAP plan? And kudos to Mary Ellen Copeland for doing that. So we have so many different approaches and toolkits that we just really need to get out there more and share with other people. Uh, I just think we've done incredible work over the years. And creating another toolkit for people uh, community accountability, all these different terms that we're not really used to in our movement that now we can embrace and figure out how do we use that to help us move forward.
1: Every movement has its challenges. All of that is part of, I think, when you when people live with internalized oppression, use of power and privilege. And I think, yeah, the more that we can just be really open about that, I think, yeah. the better. And, and, and the healthier a movement is, I think, when we can talk about those things
0: openly. But it's ultimately going to heal all of us. And I think we're at the forefront to, to create this for ourselves and then to put it into the world. Because I think we need to get outside of us And into the community because believe it or not, people are going to be suffering from trauma. They're going to be head on with the mental health system, and what? Where will we be? Can they reach us um, beforehand when they're being forced or they're being you know their rights are being violated? They need to know that this we exist. This is what we've gone through. Here are our stories. I'm looking forward to that to making it more a part of the world, a part of the mainstream that it's it's really separate. It needs to not be separate. Where do we give family members like a parent, a mother whose son or daughter is going through something, you know, what kind of tools will we give to them? And we could say, here's what we've done. You know, here's some tools that you can share with your your loved one that's other than what we always use, you know, Treatment models and that kind of thing. Here's some other models, and I'm looking forward to that day, and I hope I see it in my lifetime, Leah. <laughs> you know? Right, I
1: know. You know, looking at not just all of the issues around racial justice, but right. climate justice and the, yeah. the amount of distress that is happening now and that is coming and and that we as a movement of people who have created alternatives to the system, which will not, even if the system was great, it will not be able to meet the needs that are coming at us with,
0: yes, you know, with climate yes, change. Yes. Um,
1: so in the face of all of that, which can feel really overwhelming, there's a lot of grief <laughs> and fear that people are, are feeling. What are your words of encouragement
0: and, and support in, in these times? I would say let's build community. Let's build each other up one by one, person by person, group by group. We're in a time that we need so much healing that the healing leads to social change and social justice. This fight I think we should continue to have because it does lead to what I said like. Uh, Healing and really living, you know, an authentic life. Right now, our youth are suffering. They don't have the tools to fight off feelings of suicide. I've seen this in my whole family and try to be supportive of them. You know, where do they go? And it can't be just, so now you have to be locked up. What are some tools? Why is the person even thinking about suicide? What is going on with that person? And, and, you know, in conjunction with who they're around in the community, how does that happen? I'm really concerned about it. Like, if things aren't going well in this society or your family or wherever, or, and then you internalize all of this, how do you get through that? What are, what are we going to do to help you think, I want to be here in this world? And I want to be here on my terms. And how do I heal? What can we bring around uh, the people who are feeling this? Incidentally, there's black youth who are committing suicide at 12. I think that's a tragedy. That's why would that happen? And I think we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing? And we can't hide behind risk. This person's at risk and superficial ways that they think that people are going to get better. And I think we have to work through that. We have to have the patience in this fast pacing world.
1: Glad you brought up, you know, issue of, of of suicide and how it's really kind of uh, increasing as uh, not just across all age groups, but across all races. And I think yeah. there are uh, alternatives to suicide which yes. uh, you know came out of the Western mass recovery learning yes. community and yes. has since taken root in many other places and it's an opportunity for people to really be together and talk about suicide in a way that they don't need to be afraid of having someone freak out and call the cops on them or what. Right, um, right, right. It's truly really safe space that does not exist in suicide prevention, where there is such a yeah. you know, function behind it, and that there's also a lot of resistance. It's threatening, right? It's threatening when we get together and take charge of talking about suicide and, and finding
0: our own reasons to live. Right. And in terms of climate change, what i would learned from climate change is the incident that happened in Puerto Rico. Mm. And i would learned that climate change is tied to all of it, to race, to privilege, all of it. It took them a while to even get aid. They tried to blame them for the tragedy that they had nothing to do with. Oh. Okay, and I was really horrified by that, Leia. And it's the first time I really, really looked at that. Oh my God, what is the government doing to help the people so they can help themselves? It's not a handout. We need. We generally need help. You know, and I just felt like that the people were not getting help and they were fighting to get the help they needed. People weren't having water, you know, just clean water. Everything was destroyed. I'm just giving it one example. We've had many other tragedies after that. Sure, But that struck me as that this... You know, and then what happened is everyone came together and was sending donations and people were coming and, and helping out. And that's what helps bring us together. But when there's something like this, oh, they're, you know, they're a person of color. We're not going to give as much as we get, would give to another, uh, country that had this happen or another place in the U.S. And that taught me a lot. So I'm definitely want to work with climate change. I think we all need to be doing that. The youth, I think, are leading the way in this. And I want to follow them and see what I can do to be supportive or any ideas I can give for climate change. I'm very, uh, I think I think that's the next wave I do.
1: What I hear you saying in all of that is that individual solutions have never worked right and yes. even even sort of movements who are kind of staying in their lane this mm-hmm. is no longer uh, the time where that is a viable way of working right and that, yes. that and that yeah. figuring out ways to to build bridges to find common cause to be in solidarity across movements across generations is is really the way that we're going to if we're going to get out of this <laughs> uh climate catastrophe that we're in and just this general time of such extreme uh, instability and unrest yeah you know, it's, it's got to be together it's got to be together like none of us can be in this alone whether as individuals or movements i'm really looking forward to you know the possibilities with surviving race and with um, really thinking about how can we break down some of these silos and, and connect
0: Right, absolutely. We need to f- find resilience. That's another word that we've been using. And we're all going to have to do it together, as you said. And I'm looking forward to that, you know?
1: Well, thank you, Celia, so much. I am as well. And uh, so, so thank appreciate you. you taking time to be on the podcast and uh, really want to express my gratitude to. All of the path breaking work that you've been involved in, in in so many different arenas. So, thank you for that. So,
0: thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.